<laughs> we, we're very we're, we're helped a lot by some uh, actual uh, German speakers in our community here who are uh, helping me with uh, words when we say them and pronunciations throughout. So keep us keep us on track. Keep us honest. Interestingly, but, though, Marta was not my first time on Relativity. That's true. You've you've been uh, in the background a couple of times. Yes. Uh, so. some, sometimes with your voice stretched and filtered. Um, there was one time where I needed a big crowd of people. And you had given the best line reading on the line that I wanted to throw into the mix. So I actually used you as three different people <laughs> with your voice filtered in different ways. And I found that if we drop the pitch of your voice about 50%, you sound uncannily like Marriott Hartley. Yes, you've told me that before. Mm-hmm. Wh- whose voice <laughs> I've always been in love with. So uh, that was an interesting discovery. Like, whoa, it's it's Stephanie. How about that? But yeah, <laughs> well, so so you know, it, it, I I wanted to to do something that would fill backstory because we know that uh, Sophia has lived all over the world, and I had dropped the remark earlier that her her parents were humanities professors. And that, uh, and we had also established that uh, she's uh, that their family's Jewish, and I thought, wouldn't it be great if they were part of this um, reverse diaspora that's ha- that's happening now of a lot of people of uh, Jewish descent who are who are going back to Germany. Oh, that's and, an interesting concept. Yeah. Yeah, and um, because now Germany is one of the most uh, you know uh, has one of the most diverse populations, and sort of as a people, they're embracing cultural diversity in ways that. A hundred years ago, we would never have thought would no. be part of their national character. And uh, but yeah, to their to their great credit, that's sort of uh, who as a nation they feel like it seems like they're trying to be. So and because they have moved for work, you know that um, the uh, the Schumachers they they went to Italy for a while, and then Sophia grew up and went away, and she's been in China for heaven's sake in America, and uh, and they followed her to to Puerto Rico when she got the Arecibo assignment. So now for a time they were all there. And then the weird irony of this show, of course, is that uh, part of the, the, the backstory of relativity is this, uh, this pandemic uh, virus. Yes. That's, that's killed uh, professor Schumacher and has, um, has put uh, poor Sybil in danger and uh, has killed like, I don't know, like a third of the people on the planet or something like that. Something which I used to think was insane until I started reading about the 1918 pandemic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We very nearly did it. So. Yes. Well, uh, I I love Marta and I've loved bringing her to life. And I'm a fan of relativity. And I don't understand all of the references and Easter eggs that I've heard you discuss with some of your <laughs> other friends on here. So what I thought we could do today, with your permission, is that I could ask you some questions about relativity and your creative life, if that's okay with you. I love it. The first question that I have is, you are an actor, a writer, director, and now a producer of this audio program, Relativity. Which of those hats or roles feels most comfortable to you? Oh, as a writer, absolutely. Um, I've been trying to learn audio production as I've been going. And I've learned so, so much that, that now I can't listen to those first few episodes. I'm glad that it doesn't seem to affect other people the same way that they're, they're not listening to it going, Oh my God. And, <laughs> and they don't get past episode five cause they can't stand it. Um, so I know, I, and I've, I've been able to talk with other, um, 
podcasters uh, who do audio fiction uh, about this. And they're saying, yeah, I can't listen to my first few episodes either. But it, apparently it's just us. We're, we're the only ones who hear all the, <laughs> right. the things that we do differently now. So as but, a writer, do yeah. you do you like audio drama more than stage plays, more than film writing? Is there a favorite genre that you prefer? I was just telling somebody about that this morning that I got hooked on audio drama thanks to my parents uh, who were, of course, you know, depression age people who grew up during the golden age of radio and they never lost their love for it. So they were always when I was a kid, always talking about these shows that they wished they could share with me. And then they started coming out on uh, on record albums and every now and then there would be a radio station who had a, a nice back catalog of uh, these shows on vinyl or something. And so they would, they would play them just, just marvelous things like that. And that, that was a, uh, in a way it was like a uh, time travel that I have vivid memories of uh, finding one of these radio stations where they were playing shows from the forties. And uh, my mom and dad and I would sit, around the family radio and listen to these shows just as they had done when they were kids. That's wonderful. And were there, are there any that, that stick out in your memory? Oh, as? Well, yeah. What the, my uh, immediate passion was for um, Fibber McGee and Molly, which is certainly not a drama, but, <laughs> uh, but my golly, the, the language, the, those scripts are so clever. Um, that, that was a, a pair of writers who, who just loved, who were in love with the English language. Um, I just, I just admired that so much. And I, I, I started, um, my dad bought me a little tape recorder when I was 13, something like that. And I immediately started just improvising audio dramas that were nothing but me, of course, doing all the voices for my own amusement. That's so awesome. I, I've, I've been doing this, uh, yeah, for, yeah, something like 45 years now. So what, what do you think is the allure now? of audio dramas and this absurgence in the popularity of podcasts. Why now? I, I've been thinking about that a lot. And I, I really think that for a lot of people, they really want to have a, a solitary experience and you can't get more solitary than something that you put in your ears. Mm -hmm. And so they can close their eyes, you know, just by themselves and be transported to any time, anywhere that the the magic of audio drama can create. And and we do have this explosion of immensely creative audio fiction out there because so many people have discovered, you know, what we knew from <laughs> uh, the 1930s and 40s, that it's, it's the movie that you don't have to build anything for. Right, you know? yes. Uh, everything happens inside the audience's mind, which you, you could say, well, that's a book. Yeah, it is. But <laughs> yeah. um, it's a book that somebody's reading to you with sound effects and music and uh, and the and nuanced performances, one hopes. So it's uh, it's it's the best of best of all possible worlds to me. Um, yeah, there's there's something very unique about this particular mode of storytelling not just for the creators and the performers, but also for the listeners. And I hadn't really thought of that solitary experience until you mentioned it just now, because I really enjoy the collective experience of seeing movie theaters or movies and movie theaters mm -hmm. and seeing live theatrical productions. And 
I also enjoy audiobooks, but this is different and this is a this is a completely unique experience and I don't know if the technology that we have now makes it so much easier for people to have an idea and this is a an easy way I shouldn't say easy, right? A, a less expensive way, yeah, yeah and, exactly, to get their story out to the public, and they're wonderful. I think that's a, I think that's absolutely right, and it is an interesting paradox that, that you and I we're we're fans of the live theater. Of course, we uh, I, I I enjoy movies of all kinds, but there are certain movies that you know once I've seen them in the theater and then I watch them again at home, it ain't the same. Right? Yeah. You know you. Uh, uh, I, I always say that I, I am one of the, the lucky people who, uh, I'll never forget this, the Beekman Theater in, uh, in Manhattan. When I was living in New York, um, The Princess Bride came out. Best and, movie ever. Go on. And I was one of the first people in the city. I think it was released in the big cities first. So I may have been one of the first people in America to see that film. But I was in a, in a crowded theater. The Beekman, I think, seats like 500 people. So wow. it was me and 500 strangers. And I mean, we were standing up for like yeah. the last act of that film. <laughs> we were shouting at the screen. My name is Inigo Montoya. You yeah. killed my father. Prepare to die. <laughs> you know? Oh, my God. I'll never forget that. Yeah. Of course, I've seen that film a hundred times since then on the small screen. And it ain't the same. No, it's not. But it's interesting that the... The memories and the warmth that you had of sitting around and listening to the radio stations or the albums with your family, like they had in the generation before you, we don't have that experience really with anything anymore. When I was a child in the 80s, we did it around the television because if you wanted to watch something that came on at 8 o'clock on Thursdays, you had to watch it at 8 o'clock on Thursdays. That's right. And so we would all gather around to watch that. And now with my teenage sons, we haven't watched something together in the same room for a very long time because they watch what they want on their phones or in their own room or computer or, or whatever. So it is interesting that this that these podcasts give you this opportunity to have this solitary experience. And the other thing is that people have they have created sort of a community around Twitter pages or, you know, you have and people have sent in, you know, fan art and things like that. So there is a community, but it's done privately which is a, a strange phenomenon it it really is and I, I i tell you i think i may have mentioned this before but i think the epiphany for me was when um i i went to the uh the convention um pod tales in uh, in massachusetts and i had been to a couple of other uh, podcasting events like that but this one was really dedicated to uh, audio fiction Mm -hmm. um, I was sharing a table with uh, Deej Silvis, who does Moonbase Theta out, and uh, our friends from Oz9 were there. And, of course, uh, Sarah Werner was a big celebrity because she's uh, the girl in space. And, uh, you know, I was able to, to sort of meet and hobnob with uh, some of these people whose work I've admired. So the, the fascinating thing to me was that it wasn't just a, 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 a conference of people who – uh, podcast, but it was also open to to fans and people who wanted to learn more about our shows. Uh, people were coming by our little table and so on in a in a never ending stream. And it seemed to me like, with few exceptions, most of the the podcast fans who were coming into Podtails were like, well, I told DJ at one point, I said they're like little baby deer. <laughs> they just seem like timid. 
Uh, and if you spoke suddenly to them, they would back up and, you know, bound away. Socially awkward. Yeah. Uh, sometimes really charmingly so. And and it really struck me for the first time that what they are loving is something that is a solitary experience for them. And if you are a shy person, if you are somebody who really uh, draws your energy from being alone, then the podcasting audio fiction world was made for you. Yes. Yeah. What a gift. Yes. What a gift. It's wonderful. And, and but it's interesting because they they had such a love for it that they wanted to come out and they wanted to meet you and they wanted to maybe overcome some of their social anxiety to to be a part of the community. Several of the people I talked with about that remarked on that. I said, think of what it has cost these people. Well, you know, they were saying, heck, think of how hard it is for us as introverts right. <laughs> to be out here, you know, with a with a sign on our, our, our table saying, hey, come and talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the the roots of relativity. And you've mentioned several times that you are one of the writers who has everything planned out. You know the arc of the story before you start writing. Do you start with characters? Do you start with a setting? Do you start with themes that you want to explore? Maybe not every time, but for relativity, what was it? It really was a, a concept that I like the idea of. I really wanted to tell a story about two people that when one of them's got to be in space because I wanted the, the there to be, as the story goes on, this ever yawning distance between them, that they're getting further and further apart. But what's happening to them emotionally is that they're getting closer and closer. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that that paradox was, was interesting. That is and, interesting. And really uh, sort of a, a metaphor for our times I think there are a lot of things that that distance us from each other, but there's also the potential for people to become closer to people once they get to know them, once they surrender prejudices or first impressions or preconceived notions. So once you had that that concept, how did you develop the characters? Which character became more solidified in your mind first or did they happen at the same time? Yeah, that's a really good question to which I do not have an, a, a good answer. <laughs> I, I knew that that um, just because of the sheer convenience of uh, casting me, that I wanted to be one of those two people. Right. Um, and, and besides, I uh, I've said this many times in these conversations, but it but it it just always <laughs> bears repeating that I had spent my adult life being trained to be an actor as a as a teenager, I guess, I had the idea that that's what I was going to be doing at this time in my life, that I was going to be a professional working actor. But I kind of got that beaten out of me in graduate school because I was being told kind of at every turn, you don't have, you don't have the look, Mm. you know, and that's discouraging. Yes. uh, uh, Particularly in such a, such an image based um, kind of field of work. But, um, and in the process, I was also getting really interested in writing. But it's funny that uh, during all that time, I was forgetting that behind the microphone, nobody knows what you look like. They can imagine anything that they like. Yes. Uh, and and that's that's marvelous. Orson Welles, who of course is one of the the pioneers, I guess, of uh, of uh, audio drama that people are still talking about. He said that he loved, you know, his whole career. He said he loved doing audio drama because he said the camera is your judge and the microphone is your friend. Yes. There's so much truth in that. <laughs> so it's, isn't it? Because <laughs> you've other, done enough of both that you, you, you know. I know. Yes. 
The the other thing that I found interesting that you've mentioned before a couple of times is that you identify more with the personality of Sophia than you do with that of Chris. Talk about that. Yeah, I th- it was not conscious when I started uh, writing, but uh, again, I wanted to do something that was uh, a stretch that was th- that would be interesting for me as an actor to try to do. And um, I've I've always had kind of an antipathy towards loudmouth know-it-alls. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, because I have worked with a lot of guys who who can't be reasoned with and who say, well, I, I know what I'm doing, so I'm just going to do this, mm-hmm. despite the experts around them saying, well, you probably don't want to do that because and they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then go do it their way and then get in trouble. Yes. And I thought, well, that, that would be interesting to try to see if I can credibly play one of those guys because and to and to make him sympathetic, too, because I didn't I don't want him to be the villain. No, but but just that that person who is really different from me in this way. And and there was no question in my mind that if I was going to do this crazy thing that I wanted to do it with Elena, because um, Mm -hmm. I've known her for years and years and I've just always been uh, astounded by her talent. And I had worked with her on the um, the web series pilot that we did called Herlock. No, sir, that's the problem. I don't know exactly where she is. We were talking on a video chat. and No, it is not porn. Lots of people. Is there somebody else I can talk to? Oh my god. Oh my god, I bet the church is hang on, okay? Uh, if I hadn't been president of her fan club before, I certainly was after that. Right. So I wanted to do that. And and the, so the same thing happens there. I thought she she is such a just a, a ball of energy. But uh, I thought it'd be fun for her to play somebody who has got to stick by the rules. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and is just, you know, yeah, but that's not what the book says. You know? So that's, that's really not her. But, so the uh, two of you were really cast against type in this project. That was my goal. And, and you know, I think one of the things that has been fun for me was to try to imagine, once she said, I really would love to, to for us to get to know my mother, so we'll have to figure out who that is. I thought, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be interesting to sort of try to figure out how Sophia got to be the way she is? Oh, uh, yeah. And so that that's sort of my... Um, my, my, my Freudian psychological theory about her is that she has this very demanding mother. Yes. Who she can't please. Right. And my experience of people like that is that part of what happens is that you become somebody who gets, who becomes a rigid perfectionist mm-hmm. because there's a part of you that says, well, I'll show her. Yeah. I'll be perfect. It's still not going to work, but you know. <laughs> so you did the first few seasons and then thanks to Elena, you expanded because the first few seasons were just the two of you, really. Right. The two characters. And, but clearly you don't, the two of you didn't exist in a vacuum. Well, you did, uh, your character did Chris on the spaceship by himself, but yeah. Sophia is surrounded by a team of people and, right. and a family. And it, it's interesting to see the different dynamics that she has and and the way Sophia relates to her mother, the way Sophia relates to Marcus, the way she relates to her subordinates or teammates. And it's a very round character. Whereas the beginning, she was this one type of person, just as Chris was one type of person. It's been interesting to see the growth of those characters over the last few seasons. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I It's something I've worked very hard on, and it's so gratifying when people say, you know, I love, I've loved watching these characters grow. So for me, it's very interesting, and, and I have friends who, who want to know the way things end, and I don't know. So I'm on the show. 
but I only get my sides. So I haven't read the entire <laughs> script. I don't know how it ends. I don't know what the how the mystery is going to be solved and some of the motivations and so on. So as a fan, I'm really looking forward to to when we can get back into full production and see how this story winds up. Yeah, it's a tantalizing point we were at. We have sort of spoilers for episode 50. Spoilers, 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 spoilers. But we, we finally just tracked spoilers. down the one person who may be able to, who may be able to explain all of this stuff. Yes. He's also famously crazy. Right. So let me ask you this. Before Relativity, what other audio dramas had you written? Oh, uh, I, I was the head writer on a, a series called Body Love. Okay, y'all. Just drop whatever you're doing and turn up your radio because it's time for Body Love. That was yes. uh, created by uh, my friend, uh, Dr. Connie Kohler. It was really her her idea to do a show that would um, be what is known in the business as entertainment education, being a show that would have a very clear and distinct teaching message, but would do so by seeding this message inside legitimate entertainment. And we knew we couldn't do a TV series. A series of plays means that people have to come to the theater to see them. But if we could get on that radio station, you know, that was the thinking. And... We did Body Love for years. How, I, how frequently was it aired? Oh, it was once a week. Okay. We used to try to, to make the ep, the episode proper about 20 minutes. So there'd be 10 minutes afterwards uh, so that when the show was aired live, uh, people could call in and there would be a, a health expert who would be on the line to talk with people about stuff. That's wonderful. And sometimes, of course, we'd run out of time. The, the most interesting part of the half hour was the, the that caller and their uh, the answer they were getting from the uh, from the doctor. But so um, so, how many hats did you play in that? Were you director, producer, actor? I, I was a writer, and I was really able to to focus on that. Uh, and I was a teacher. I we we had a, a room full of students who wanted to learn how to create this kind of educational material, and so we would workshop ideas in the classroom and students would write portions of script and then I would take them home and really uh, make them into that 20 minutes of radio drama. That's fascinating. It was great fun, but a, but a high wire act because we were always writing right up to the time when we would go into the studio. I know a lot of people, a lot of my, my friends uh, who are podcasters, th that's just how they work. And that drives me nuts. I can't, yeah. <laughs> I don't like that. <laughs> but particularly when we'd get into the studio and somebody would point out a howling error in something that I'd written and then we'd be scrambling to fix it. Yeah. That happened more than once. Uh, it was called body love because for the double meaning of, uh, you know, learning how to really love and take care of the only body you got. Mm -hmm. But the, it was also sort of nominally centered around a beauty salon that was called Body Love. Oh, wonderful. Uh, so it was about these women who who worked there and that was their, you know, that was the business that they owned together. But their extended family, their husbands and children and parents and so on, some of them had good health habits and some of them had really uh, bad health habits. And as the course of the story went on, the people with the healthy habits got rewarded with uh, mm -hmm. long life. <laughs> and, right. And the people with the bad habits were getting into all kinds of uh, difficulties. And so the conversation very quickly turns to how can this be prevented? How can this be avoided? How can you learn more about uh, this, that, and the other? The, so for it, the people who are fans of Lee Shackelford, is there any way to listen to Body Love now? We are working on, on getting Body Love back out there. 
I want to try to get it out there as a podcast. Meanwhile, a similar project that we did in the Maximum Security Penitentiary mm-hmm. in Birmingham, a series that we called Corrections at the time. And that was a project where Dr. Kohler again and I went into the prison and met with some of the incarcerated men there. And together, we developed a storyline and wrote scripts very much in the same model as Body Love. And then my friend Dennis McLernan, I'll still never figure, I wasn't there, so I still can't figure out how he did this. He got permission to get recording equipment into the prison. Mm-hmm. If you saw the way they frisked us every time we went in there, you'd be amazed that he was able to get a recorder in there. <laughs> Somehow he did <laughs> several times. So the men who wrote these stories then acted it out. Mm, that's amazing. And, and some of them are really good mm-hmm. because they know what they're talking about, of course. You know, they, they were really passionate about this. So it's been years now, but uh, I've been able to get those recordings, do some new post-production on them. So now we have the first eight episodes of those out as a podcast. Didn't know I could still bench my own weight. Your own weight? Damn straight. I seen you bench 200, but I didn't know you could. I could what? Well... 200 ain't even close to Close to what? Come on, you can say it. We cellmates. We got no secrets. I know we're cellmates. That's why I ain't going to say nothing to make you mad. Which we're now calling Corrections Survival of the Fittest. Awesome. Title suggested by one of the uh, one of the incarcerated men that we're still in touch with there. We just found out there were a bunch of podcasts called Corrections. But yeah, Corrections Survival of the Fittest. And the website is CorrectionsSurvival.com. And so you can hear all the all eight episodes there. And there, and we went back and uh, worked with the same group of people, more or less, and created yet another batch. So there are more episodes possible. They're still out there. That's yeah, fantastic. So. Well, it's wonderful that they that they felt they had a voice. Not only in the creating, but in the performing of these pod, these dramas or scripts. That's wonderful. Well, exactly. Yeah, that they are finally getting to, to, to tell their story, which again is about health issues. Mm-hmm. This conversation reminds me of a show that I enjoy that you and Karen introduced me to, which is The Good Place. And so yeah. I don't want to plug that too much, but <laughs> but they but it's wonderful and there are so many things about philosophy and humanity and what we owe to each other. There are sometimes when the punishment is cruel. So the crime isn't cruel, but the punishment is cruel. And I wish the best for those those gentlemen. And I'm so glad they had the opportunity to share their story in their own voices. That's wonderful. People who would never have heard them before, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. are hearing them now. But yeah, I, I really admire the the writing and idea of uh, The Good Place and, and shows like it. And it's, you know, I, I don't think in network television, you ever want to say that your show is entertainment education. Right. But who expected what looks like a light comedy to sometimes get so in such depth about um, schools of philosophical thought. Yes, I think it's it's brilliant. It's just amazing. So I want to switch the conversation again back to you. Throughout your career, is there a particular project or a a role that you played as an actor or some a script that you wrote that is seems to right now like your crowning jewel, like wow, I am so proud of that thing, or I loved that thing so much. What is it? What a, what a great question. And um, uh, my wife and I, I think you and I have talked about this too, this this problem of how do you know when you've arrived, mm. you know, that a lot of um, 
well, you know, we, we all have teenagers and, uh, and I, of course I, I teach undergraduates, you know, so these, there are times in our life where we're looking in the future stretching out before us and we're, and we have all these hopes and dreams and, and very few of us achieve those precise dreams, but somehow we are happy nonetheless. Yes. <laughs> as if that wasn't really what uh, what life was all about. And uh, but I have known people who have hit all the high marks that they that seem right for their career, and they're miserable. Mm-hmm. And I always think this is why Hollywood marriages don't work, and why so many of the big stars we know have uh, you know alcohol and drug problems, because there is no there there. You know, you're still waiting for the the moment when somebody hands you your medal or whatever and says you did it. Right. Uh, it, it, it just absolutely never happens. I have always been looking to the next thing and saying, I guess the big thing that I'm going to do, it's what I do after this. And and that's a that's been a terrible thing, really. Sometimes I've just completely missed the joy of what I was doing in the moment because I was already planning the next thing. So and, can and, you can you think of anything looking back? Can you think of something you meant like, wow, I loved that project? Well, there have been a lot of them, but but yeah, right now my answer is what's the best thing I've ever done? What's the thing that I'm proudest of? What's the culminating work? It's relativity. Yeah. I'm trying to embrace the fact that this is where I am right now. And if something happens that I never do another creative project, this is it. And I've tried to treat it like it's the it's the most uh, important or consequential thing that I've ever done. And, and, and maybe more to the point, it just gives me absolute joy. Part of my my challenge in editing Marta's lines, you know, when I sit to when I take one of the recordings and you and I've made together, mm-hmm. is that I have to cut out two thirds of it because it's you and me cutting up and <laughs> clowning around and, you know, what, yeah. what a delight that is. What, what joy. It, that is joyful. And I didn't know if you would say relativity, but I suspected that you would because this is, so this right now feels to me like this is your baby. And and you love it because there are a lot of things that we do creatively that we don't love. You know, right. so it's like it was a good experience or I learned something from that or I'm I'm glad I did it. I don't have regrets, but I don't have this connection to it. And and that word isn't lost on me that I'm talking about connection. <laughs> right. um, but I I think it comes through in your script writing and it comes through in your performances and it comes through in how you direct me as Marta that you love this. You love these characters. You love this story. You love the themes involved and it shows. I'm so glad. That would be pointless, I guess, if it didn't. Uh, And I I really do have a big point that I'm trying to make, or at least a big opinion that I'm trying to to state. I think it's a pretty big idea, really. And it won't be until the last three or four episodes that we'll really unpack it all. And, you know, and a lot of people, I think, will get to that point and go, oh, for God's sake. And <laughs> and I think a lot of other people will go, I never thought about that before. Huh. Yeah. Well, uh, I think you know, that regardless of what people think at the end, the people who have listened throughout will have enjoyed the ride. So I think yeah. that's important. Oh, yeah. You, if they didn't, then, yeah, they, they really have been through a hard slog for nothing. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, they... So it it takes me back to the television show Lost. It was a, Mm -hmm. and, you know, lots of people loved it and lots of people completely trash it now, but it was a phenomenon and watching it was a joy and wondering where it was going was wonderful. And then it sort of kind of fell apart, (laughs) but, but the journey was still delightful and the performances were fantastic and, and the possibilities were great. So 
And, and always that, those those great cliffhangers too, you know. Yes. You, you go, Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Well, and that see. is that is that is not a coincidental relationship too, because I, I was at Comic Con one year when J.J. Abrams was one of the the guests of honor, and uh, and he was taking questions from the audience, and somebody asked him, you know, do you know where this show is going? This is you know like during season three of Lost, and he smiled and nodded his head in this kind of mechanical you know bobbing dog head kind of way, and he said, yes, I do. Yeah. <laughs> and they, we we could all hear the John Lovitz. Yeah. Of, <laughs> and, and I thought, oh, that's interesting because I would not take on something like Lost if I didn't know what what's going on. Right. But I think he was telling us we are making this up as we go along, so you don't know where it's going. And I think in the end, they painted themselves into such a tight corner there was only one way out. Yeah. And I yeah. was determined. I thought about that when I started plotting relativity. I said, I determined. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if I'm going to build this this giant complex mystery, there's there really is. I know from the beginning why this is happening and and what's going on. So yeah. I'm just yeah. not going to do that to people. Well, I one of the podcasts that I've been listening to is the I have listened to all of them actually is the Good Place the podcast hosted by Mark Evan Jackson who is phenomenal and he always asks at the end of all of his podcasts and that's this is how I would like to end with you if you don't mind. Lee Eric Shackelford, what's good? Hmm. Empathy. Uh, that's beautiful. Would you like to expand on that? No. Okay. Because I don't care. No. Because uh, <laughs> I don't care what you think. I think one of the things that I'm, I think, transparently trying to get at in relativity and in my life is that, well, Buddhism teaches that there's only one suffering. And we're all suffering it. And once you know that, and once you take that into yourself, then you can recognize it in other people. That I, I'm in pain, and so are you. That makes us related. That makes us connected. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that so many of the problems of the world are fostered by a lack of empathy. Even if it's only for a moment, even if you you fail to remember that that person that you're angry with behind the counter who didn't give you what you wanted, this the waitress, you know, she had a fight with her husband before she came to work and her and her feet hurt and she's this is a 9-hour shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can you give her a break, all right? That's that right. kind of thing. That's what I think. So empathy is good. Empathy's good. Fight because me. because <laughs> <laughs> that's the end of the show that's perfect there you go. <laughs> <laughs> empathy's good fight me <laughs> cue the music that's perfect empathy's good fight me I think that's <laughs> if you enjoy space adventures featuring brave and competent astronauts If you enjoy podcasts that are culturally sensitive... I've been labeling stuff aboard the ship with post-its so she can learn our language. I speak English, you bloody... If you enjoy shows with sophisticated humor... Well, that's just rude. It's her spacesuit. Then you may not want to listen to Oz9. But if you simply enjoy giggling... Oh, <laughs> you anglers, so snooty about all the everythings. 
Oz9 may be the show for you. Get it wherever you find the other shows you like to put in your ears. That title is spelled O Z dash numeral 9. You could certainly do worse. This is a Ninth World Journal. A careless experiment with a teleportation device has left me stranded in random places throughout the Ninth World. While trying to survive in these strange lands, I must find a way to reverse my condition. A Ninth World Journal is a science fantasy audio drama podcast. Subscribe to listen or visit ninthworldjournal.com.